Episode 175, Janet Pollack, former Marine Lieutenant Colonel and author of the book, The Seven Mistakes New Managers Make. I pretty much lost my patience and lost my temper. And there, unfortunately, were three or four people around me. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Janet, her consulting practice, her book, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake175. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. My guest today is Janet L. Pollack. She is a global leadership development partner and coach. She has developed leaders in the U.S. and in many countries, many continents around the world. She is a retired lieutenant colonel, having served and spent 20 years in the Marines. Uh, so Janet knows a thing or two about what it takes to be a great leader, and we're going to explore that here today. So before I tell you a little bit more uh, about Janet, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you so much, Mark. It's a delight to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk to you, and we'll hear your story, and I want to talk about um, your book. Janet is the author of a book titled The Seven Mistakes Managers Make, so you can understand so Janet's in uh, the right place. Um, she's uh, received her PhD in organizational development. She worked with a global consulting firm in China. After doing so, she launched her own consulting practice, helping hundreds of companies around the globe, including major brands and government contractors. And uh, Janet's bio says uh, she describes a no-nonsense approach. Maybe that sounds like what we might expect from uh, the Marine Corps but also a lighthearted approach in what separates her. Uh, that's part of what separates her from the boys. And um, as she puts it and creates transformational results for even the most struggling leaders. So again, the book is the seven mistakes managers make and Janet's website is www.inthelead.co. And there will be links in the show notes. Uh, it would be a mistake to do.com. So again, it's in the lead.co. Um, so, Janet, there's so much I want to ask you about um, from your experiences and even from you know, some of the, the colorful language in your in your bio there. But we're going to dive in as we normally do here, um, if you would. You know, thinking of the different things you've done, what is your favorite mistake? Well, my favorite mistake happened when I got back from uh, China. My husband and I spent three wonderful years living and working there. I got a chance to work for Corn Ferry International which is really one of the leading leadership development firms around the world and got to work with, you know, an amazing suite of fortune 50 companies um, around Asia. And so I was hired to build out a leadership curriculum for a company here in Minneapolis and um, came on board and had some conversations with senior leadership about, you know, how robust do you want the program? Do you want world-class or do you want, something that's pretty solid because, you know, world-class programs take a lot of resource. And they said, no, no, we want world-class, you know, give us all you got. And so I spent the next several months working with an incredible designer and we put the program together. And the people that were working on the logistics side 
just didn't hold up their end of the bargain. You know, we had a couple speakers that never got um, scheduled. We got, uh, we had people that got invited at the very last minute. We had materials that weren't ready. And at one point, I finally said to this person that I was working with, she and I didn't really hit things off when we first came together in the first place. I finally told her how disappointed I was. I pretty much lost my patience and lost my temper. And there, unfortunately, were three or four people around me at the time. It was a really bad experience. Um, needless to say, I am no longer with that organization. And um, But here's what I learned. What I learned is, first of all, um, some people just aren't made to work together. Uh, I do this in a lot of my coaching work. I work on dyad relationships. And sometimes, you know, that gap just can't be filled. Um, the other thing I learned is fit matters when you go to work for an organization. Um, three months into this job, I lasted, I think, about two years. But three months in, I was shaking my head like, oh, this is not the right place for me. They're not in a very challenging industry. They're not, um, they're not globally oriented. And uh, so it was a struggle all along. And I probably had seen the signs as I came on board, but was excited for the job and excited for the challenge. So um, we live and learn, don't we, Mark? Uh, we, I mean, we all, we all live, we all make mistakes. And, you know, as we encourage here on My Favorite Mistake, hopefully we are learning um, from those mistakes. And, you know, from that story, I mean, it seems like there's, there's a lot um, to unpack there. Um, you know, for, I mean, first off, it sounds like, you know, that they, in that moment of giving that feedback or getting upset, that was more of a, a no nonsense moment for you. It was a no nonsense moment for me because the, the lack of follow through did make me look bad. You know, when you have a program that you're running and the speaker doesn't show up, you know, you have time to fill you like it's a problem. And when you're the face to the to the program, uh, it's a difficult one to deal with. And yet um, giving any kind of constructive feedback in front of a group is is really never appropriate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I talk about it in my book, you know, the keys to giving effective feedback and at the top of the list is do it in private. Right. That, there's, there's kind of an old rule there. Um, I've heard it said as uh, what praise publicly and criticize, criticize. privately. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, that, that came through in your retelling of the story. I'm, I'm curious in, from from your 20 years in the Marines, was that practiced in terms of praise publicly, criticized privately? Like I, I don't have any military experience of my own, but the stereotype of military, let's say, you know, boot camp, and this could be just Hollywood nonsense, is being criticized in front of others um, all the time. Um, I'm curious, what was the leadership style in the Marines? Um, very public criticism. Um, at least during those those first several months of your induction, you know, whether you go to officer candidate school or you go to boot camp, um, you know, what you see on television is a lot what, what you get. Um, and, and it's all part of 
of the shtick, I would say, of, of the style of the mili- of the U.S. military, which is kind of break people down from their old habits and then start to build them up. So by the time you become a second lieutenant or a, a lance corporal or a corporal, there's a lot, you know, it's it's pretty uncommon to get called out in a very public environment. I do think that most Marine officers, um, you know, work at... Um, sharing that same adage about criticize privately. Yeah. So there's difference. There, there's, there's difference perhaps in the more professional environment, uh, maybe amongst officers, there's, there's a different dynamic there than there would be during induction. I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and we would say, I mean, that that's more of um, a dynamic you would expect in any workplace, let's say peer to peer or, giving feedback to an employee. Um, yeah. 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 I think, Mark, there's probably one exception to that. And and it fits so closely into our military experience, which is when there's a safety issue involved, you know, if um, someone is doing something that's unsafe or on the battlefield, they're making a decision that just is not prudent and will put others in risk. You know, that's when all, all constructive feedback guidelines mm-hmm. go out the window. Um, you know, it's always, always safety first. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good to hear. And I've seen that modeled by leaders in um, different settings, including manufacturing of, you know, Uh uh, leaders whose default mode would be to ask questions and to stay calm. And like, if they see somebody with their safety glasses on top of their head, they may, they may lose it uh, momentarily, but, but for, but for good reason. And, uh, you know, maybe it's, the urgency of, of the matter, but you know, I'm curious to hear your reflections um, like in that story that you told, um, not the words you use, but it sounds like you lost your cool a little bit in the moment. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious your reflections on that. And, you know, when, when faced with a frustration or a disappointment today, yeah. um, how, how do you react to things? Um, I, I think I've learned, you know, you, you learn what your triggers are. And in my case, this particular coworker was a trigger. Um, you know, I, I couldn't count on her for follow through. I, um, I know she was talking about me and my style uh, behind my back. And so it was a relationship that was probably doomed to end sooner than later. Um, but, you know, I think anytime even talking about this makes me uncomfortable. It was not, it was one of my worst moments professionally. It's, it's never okay to, um, to share your own frustration on top of somebody else. And when you're in a public setting, particularly, um, I did apologize, uh, after the fact. And, um, and I think that's important. I mean, that's really about the only thing that we can do when we lose our temper is once cooler heads prevail. Um, in my book, I talk about giving feedback and I encourage people not to do it in the moment because you might get caught up in that frustration and your own emotions to let some time settle in on both parties. Um, but again, thinking about as a mistake, um, it's not one I'm, I'm certainly not proud of that moment. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciate you uh, being willing to share the story and uh, to, to to talk about that, Janet. Um, one one other question about the story and the scenario that you told. Um, you mentioned, you know, three months in, you felt like this wasn't a good fit, 
And I've, I've had other guests, you know, there's always that challenge of, it could be a mistake of leaving a job too quickly, or it could end up being the opposite of looking back and saying the mistake was maybe sticking with it too long. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious your reflections on, you know, would it have been a mistake to leave after three months? Did, did you feel a, a, an obligation to, to, to try to fix things? Yes, I, I think we do, right? As, as we're hired as senior professionals, we do feel an urge to fix things, you know, that maybe I'm not reading this correctly. Maybe it's, um, it's not as bad as I see it. Uh, in this in the situation. And so you do kind of hang in there. Um, what I tell people though, when I, you know, I, I interact with a lot of people, I'm sure Mark, as you do, who are job looking, I tell them to be very mindful of the red flags because they're, um, you know, I worked for one of the large consulting companies uh, many years ago. And in that hiring process, there were many red flags, including the partner canceling the interview after I had arrived. Um, yeah, because he was too busy and he didn't get it on his calendar. And, you know, I should never have taken that job. Um, and so I think the, you know, the bigger mistake sometimes is being lulled into thinking, oh, well, it won't be that bad, or I'm misreading the situation, or um, I can make it better. Um, but I think in the interview process, if you, if you hear red flags, you're probably right. Yeah. And there's that question of, you know, do you follow your gut? Um, or mm. if we're thinking of reasons to accept the job and reasons to not accept it, you know, where, where do we find that balance? Those are mm-hmm. not easy decisions for sure. No. And they certainly have a lot to do with what's your personal situation. You know, how desperate are you for that job? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, How long have you been out of work or are you leaving? What situation are you leaving? So it is very much variable on the individual situation. Yeah. So um, again, our guest is Janet Pollack. Her book is The Seven Mistakes Managers Make. Um, Before we talk about the book and, and, and talk more about leadership and mistakes that that you've seen and that you write about. Um, and, you know, back to your bio. You know, we talk about you know, no nonsense. That seems to be again like the the, the model we think of um, with the Marines. You know, it's a serious mission. It's serious um, responsibility. Where, where where did you or why do you think it's important to also have a lighthearted approach? Was that just kind of part of your nature and personality? I think it is part of my nature. And what I learned in the Marine Corps is that you really can be yourself, even when you're in an organization that has a very strong persona. Um, And many organizations across the planet have that same thing, whether you're in healthcare or you're an airline pilot or what have you. There are expectations about how we act. But I think it's very, I think you can also find a way to bring yourself to that. that environment. Um, If I spill milk on the floor in my kitchen, I usually laugh about it because you can either get angry or you can say, oh my gosh, I have a big mess. Like, how did that happen? And so my natural tendency is to not laugh at people, but to laugh with people and say, there are a lot of things in this country, in this world that could be a lot worse. And this is just, just does not measure up to that catastrophe in the moment. And I guess one other question, you know, I'm curious about your time in the Marine Corps. Um, 
you know, what, what, what percentage of officers at your level or above were women? I imagine it was a pretty small number. It is small. So uh, pretty much consistently, the, the U.S. Marine Corps has had about 10% of its, its ranks um, in, uh, as women. Uh, that did change during the first desert storm in Iraq. Uh, we took our women along. Um, you know, we always kind of scratched our heads, like, if we get deployed, what are we going to do? And the answer was, everybody's going, so bring them along. And what happened in several cases is that women just performed admirably. They knew their jobs. They did it. They didn't complain. If there was a physical lift involved, they they literally pulled their weight. And um, after that, then things really changed for women in the U.S. military. Um, and while our, you know, our life plan is very rarely defined and, we, you know, most of us aren't able to go from step one to two to three as we played out, but I could not have been more fortunate at the time I joined the Marine Corps because everything changed for women in the 20 years that I was in. Uh, when I was a second lieutenant, I would have bet you anything that we would not have women uh, helicopter pilots um, because they were combat. You know, all of our helicopters are combat oriented um, aircraft, and yet we have helicopter pilots. Um, I remember the day probably 10 years ago when the first woman helicopter pilot died in combat. Um, it was a tough day for me. Um, she happened to be from Minnesota. And um, I did reach out to the family to try to remind them that her daughter, their daughter was doing what she loved and that this kind of came uh, with the territory. But it was still really difficult to uh, see that, you know, hear about that happen, which is on the one hand, this is something we worked so hard for. But on the other side, there's mm -hmm. a real dark side uh, to, right. to getting what you ask for. Yeah. And, and, and times have changed. I mean, again, this is you know, pointing to Hollywood, but the 36 years between uh, the original Top Gun movie and the new Top Gun Maverick in the original, women were there for Tom Cruise to uh, flirt with or, uh, mm -hmm. or uh, and, 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 and then this some. Time they're, and they're, this, this time they're in the lead. <laughs> there was uh, one female fighter pilot in yep. the new movie. Yeah. Um, more, more. Yeah you know, reflecting more diversity and reflecting how the military has changed. Yeah. 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 Um, so back to the book, um, on, uh, you know, seven, the, the seven mistakes managers make, I, you know, I'm curious, like, as you were starting to you go from idea to book, mm -hmm. um, framing, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on framing things around a book about leadership mistakes or management mistakes, as opposed to a book that says, here's the seven things you should do. Yeah. Well, that was my editor's suggestion. I said, I'm really stuck on a title. And she said, I think books that talk about things that you want to avoid rather than the things that you do are probably a little bit more interesting. Um, it was um, The Seven Mistakes was a COVID book. Um, you know, things the first six months of COVID went just fine for me. I continued my coaching and my leadership development and we transitioned, you know, to virtual. But the last, the last of that first year, the last six months were a little bit slower. And I had had on my to-do list to write a book 
Um, and so I looked back through my content and surprisingly, I had written about this a lot already. You know, I had presentations, I had facilitator guides, I had blog posts. And so the book kind of came together nicely. Um, you know, why seven mistakes? You know, there could be, I, I've, I've talked to a lot of people like who will say, Oh, my boss made 142 <laughs> just yesterday. <laughs> and and sadly, we've all worked for really bad managers. And the re I think the reason is, is because we don't train brand new managers. Uh, we spend a lot of money developing leaders, but we usually do it at the very top of the organizations. Uh, we promote people because they're really good individual contributors. And so we think they can be good managers when in fact those skills don't overlap very much. And so um, the this from the conference board, get this, um, the average individual in the United States is promoted to manager somewhere between age 29 and 31, and they don't get their first management development experience until their mid-40s. So we're all feeling that with bad managers, people are leaving because of them. Um, they don't, they get so busy trying to run their department that they forget it's the people that will create their success. And so I hope the book really gives new managers and experienced managers an opportunity to think about, here's what good looks like. I don't have to do all seven things every day. I don't have to avoid every single one every day. But here are some of the baseline skills for being a really great um, manager of other people. And I certainly recognize those, those mistakes, those failure modes that you describe. I've seen it. In manufacturing, I've seen it in healthcare. Of you know the, the the trap of taking the best individual contributor and assuming that they'll be a great manager, and then the second mistake that often compounds if you've selected poorly, um, the, the the lack of um, lack of investment, the lack of training, the lack of coaching. You know, man managers above that frontline manager are busy, and they don't. They don't, if the organization doesn't expect that a big part of their job is teaching and coaching the leaders below them, that, that, that just creates all sorts of dysfunction, to say the least. It does. It does. And I think organizations don't know how to tackle the problem because, of course, there's a lot more frontline leadership leaders than there are vice presidents. And so, you know, how do you invest in all of these uh, managers as they're new to the management rank. And it doesn't have to be hours and hours and days and days of training. Uh, what we learned, I think, in spades during COVID is we can do a couple hour session in a virtual environment and talk about the basics of giving feedback, about setting performance expectations, about managing change. We can do that over the course of you know, five or six weeks with an interaction every, um, you know, once a week and, and kind of get those, those standards built up. Yeah. And I, I can imagine, I'm curious, your experience with this, um, the data you pointed to of, let's say somebody is in a management or they've progressed through management roles for at least a decade before they're now at a level where the organization deems them worthy of this investment. Like, that 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 sort of that sink or swim dynamic could lead 
to people like are, are people swimming or are they staying above water by stepping on others? Like what habits have they developed on exactly. their own? Like how much of that can actually be, if need be, trained out of somebody? I had a manager in a session the other day. She'd been a manager for four years. And I said to the group, what are your one-on-one likes? What are what are your one-on-one meetings like? And she said, Well, Janet, I don't really do them because I don't know what I talk about. So imagine that, and, and she was a very caring person. She um she really wanted to do well by her employees. But I think managers who've got no background in how to manage or, you know, haven't had good role models are just figuring out. And so she said, I talk to my people all the time. I ask them what they're working on and we talk about status. And I say, is there anything I can do to get you on stock? But that's not really a good one-on-one. She didn't, she wasn't aware what their career aspirations were. She um, didn't have a sense about what they really loved about their job and where they really struggled. And so I, I do think, Mark, we can train out some of these old habits once we set the expectation that this is what good looks like. Right. Caring about your people, not just mm-hmm. the work and the results is what I hear you saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think what you just said, caring about, about, about the people as much as at work, is what's at the core, what's at the center of this great resignation or you know, the great rethinking, as some people have said, employees are learning because they're leaving because they're not appreciated. They're um, they're working longer and longer days um, because people have left and they aren't having quality interactions with their managers. And so mm-hmm. they feel like just a cog in the wheel. Yeah. One one data point you, you point to, one number that you point to, Janet, is billion spent every year on on leadership training. And, you know, you've pointed out that gap where a lot of people aren't getting it in their first decade or so. I mean, do do, do you think there's more of that money that's wasted because the training is not even solid, yet alone world-class is the training being aimed at the wrong people? I think it's both and. I think we're not investing in our brand new managers in those first two, three, four years of management of management experience. Um, I think we may be spending, and I shouldn't say this because I'm also an executive coach. Um, I think we're maybe spending too much money at the top of the house. Yes, those challenges are significant, and we need our leaders to be strategic. And yet. Um, you know, if you took the price of one coaching engagement and said, what could I do with those dollars and redirected it towards the bottom of the house, what would your turnover situation be like? What would your intention be like? What would your employee engagement scores uh, look like? Yeah. So when you talk about the different, or if we think about the different ways somebody might learn about leadership, um, I'm, I'm curious your experience from the Marine Corps, uh, you know, how much was, how much of the leadership expectations and behave in terms of what they do and how they do it? Um, how much of that was, let's say, classroom training? How much of it was just behaviors were modeled by officers above you? How much of it was through um, coaching? Yeah. So I, I would say um, a lot of it is classroom training. Um, and, and it's, it's, 
months and months long as a brand new captain, um, you go to something in the Marine Corps Amphibious Warfare School and it's nine months long every single day. And so it's there's an inordinate amount of training that happens in, in the military. Um, every single day, troops go out to the field and practice tactics and um, fire on, on, on the ranges. And so learning how to work together. But of course, then their superior, whoever that is with the group, is giving them feedback, is talking about what went well and what didn't go so well. So it's really built in, I think, to the backbone of the United States military, the Marine Corps being who I was involved in. And it's really what gave me my underpinnings of what does good leadership look like. Um, the military also uses a single performance review that hasn't changed in years. And it's all about leadership, that once you're st- uh, a non-commissioned officer, a corporal uh, in the Marine Corps, you are assessed on your leadership skills. And so they live and breathe it leadership in every aspect of, of what the military does. And I do think civilian organizations can do the same thing. You know, so many organizations keep redoing their performance review. You know, people aren't doing it, so they make it shorter. It's too short, so they now they make it long. They do it quarterly, but it's just as long. And really, it's about having conversations with employees about what matters to you, what gets you excited about this job, what else do you want to learn? And imagine if you have those conversations at least on a monthly basis with employees, they're going to, even if they're doing the most mundane work, they are still going to be engaged because they're engaged with each other. They're engaged with the people that they work with. They're getting their cup filled from their manager. Yeah. That's, I, I love the way you um, articulated that. And yeah, I mean, I, I was, uh, it was a little surprising. I mean, it, uh, I wouldn't have expected as much classroom training. Mm-hmm. I would have thought it would have been yeah. more field-based or more feedback mm-hmm. or coaching-based. But what I hear you describing, um, you know, I could see where, uh, you know, uh, theory, mm-hmm. book learning, if you will, yeah. you know, the classroom uh, education would only get you so far if it was not followed up with yeah. field practice and coaching and feedback. It seems like sometimes organizations, uh, they say, well, uh, the classroom training is a waste of time. You're going to learn by doing. That could be ineffective. Yeah. Knowledge or theory only could also be ineffective. Yeah. Well, and I think the military does that really well of doing theory to practice. So that you know, that nine month program I described is probably, um, I don't know, let me just guess 20 or 30% actually in a classroom. And then the classroom is taken outside and tactics are run, um, you know, exercises are done. And so there, there is, you're absolutely right, Mark, it is then application with, of course, feedback, instructors and individuals who are critiquing how things went. And, and, there's, I think, a parallel in healthcare um, clinicians who get a lot of classroom knowledge, and then they go mm-hmm. out and do um, their 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 practical education, um, their their clinicals, uh, whether it's a nurse or it's a, a doctor, is a, a resident. And I, and I've heard, like especially in nursing, there are concerns that as the amount of uh, classroom knowledge, the need for that has expanded, it's squeezed out. Mm-hmm. Mm. the practical and the clinicals. And, and so that means organizations have to adjust in terms yes. of how they're 
continuing some of that education that they might have assumed was already there. Yeah. And and in healthcare, it's a challenge because we're already short staff. And so thinking about how do I build training or development into a day-to-day, a day-in, day-out, um, it, it's a difficult thing to, to think about. Um, and, and yet it can be built in. We know that the most effective learning happens on the job, right, in the flow of work. And yet it it takes a deliberate effort to say, all right, you know, we're going to spend 30 minutes in your shift today learning something new or teaching what you know to someone else, which is really just as instructive and as developmental as a course sitting in a classroom. Mm-hmm. And so there's, um, you know, this leadership development and then there's, you know, broader organizational change that I know you focus on, um, you know, people will use the phrase change management. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you talk about the need to fully engage people to excite people about change are there, and this could be an and answer, um, mistakes made in, in how leaders go about quote unquote change management or just a lack of emphasis on proper change management? I think sometimes they just don't know how to manage a change. Uh, and there's nothing special or magic about managing a change. It's finding out what people are worried about, finding out how we're going to get them ready, and then deploying a plan. Um, I, I think that um, the attitude that the manager has about the change makes a big difference. If she is talking about, oh, we tried this five years ago. It didn't work then. I don't know where, why we're trying it again. You know, this is going to be a lot more work for us. That change is probably dead on arrival. But if the manager can understand what's behind the change, what's the rationale? Are we saving money? Are we saving steps? Are we um, increasing quality? Um, and, and it really embrace what is behind that and then help the staff understand. So here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a downside while you learn how to do this new thing. Um, we're going to learn from each other. We get a chance to refine the process. Uh, as we learn and we're in this together, that kind of attitude is going to get that change much more successfully implemented than, ah, yeah. oh, here we go again. Yeah. There's, I mean, I think there's different mindsets. There's the, here's why it's not going to work negativity. And then there's the, here's what we would do to make it work positivity. Yeah. There's two sides of that same point of there are going to be challenges. And what I hear you saying is be honest about that. Don't, yes. don't sugarcoat yes. it. Don't deny it. Be yeah, absolutely. Be, sounds like an element of just be honest with people. I think so. I think so. Because sometimes, you know, managers are in two camps around change. One is they initiate it themselves. You know, maybe there's too many mistakes. Maybe there's too much turnover. Maybe there's too much whatever. And so they initiate a change. But at least half the time, they get a change sent down to them. You know, corporate did it to us again, and this is going to make sense. And maybe from a corporation perspective, that change does make a lot of sense. But I think a good manager, and I I talk about this in the book, and I spend a whole chapter on how do you effectively manage a change, regardless of whether you're introducing the change yourself or the change is coming from above. And I'm curious to hear your reaction. I mean, a pet peeve of mine is when 
let's say there's a lack of change management and then leaders blame the people who aren't accepting change. That really irritates me or the the nails yes. on the chalkboard phrase to me is like, oh, well, they're resistant to change. Ah, you know, they're not resistant to change. They're unknowledgeable about the change. If you suddenly came to a group and said, okay, now we're going to turn right. And you gave them no explanation about why we're going to turn right. What happens when we turn right? What happens if we don't turn right? And so it's all of that background and perspective and uh, perspective setting that's required in managing a change that um, busy, busy managers don't necessarily pause and take time to say, all right, now how do I craft this message? Not as a Pollyanna, because I don't think, Mark, that's what we're talking about. I think it's being very realistic, but getting, taking time to get the background about what's driving this and why is it driving it now. Mm -hmm. um, so Janet, maybe one other question, um, something you mentioned earlier, um, giving feedback, and, and there's, there's certainly more in the book. I'm curious if you have advice or if there's a mistake, if you want to frame it that way, a mistake that's often made if someone's trying to give feedback up to their boss up. or to somebody a yeah. couple levels up or their hmm. things to look out for, be careful about, do or not do if you're trying to give feedback upward, especially let's say if it's un if it's unsolicited. Right, feedback. right, right, right. Um, I, I think it, you know, first of all, prepare. Um, good feedback uh, describes the impact. Um, it, it describes the behavior. It describes the impact. And then it's forward looking. So taking even a minute to say, what is the purpose of my feedback? What's the behavior that's getting in the way? What's the impact that behavior has had? And what would I like to see you do differently instead next time? Because, you know, it doesn't do us any good to plow old ground. Right. Like you did this and you did that and you did this and you did that. That suddenly creates uh, defensiveness. So I think number one, prepare. I think number two, finding a time where just you and your boss are together. And maybe it's just finding 15 minutes uh, on their calendar to tee up the issue. Trying to give feedback in the at the end of a meeting because you finally have three minutes is probably not going to be effective. Um but um, I think starting very frankly with, I'd like to give you some feedback is now a good time. And usually that creates enough of a curiosity in the other person. Um, and whether the person accepts the feedback or not is not your issue. Your issue is to deliver it in a professional way and whether the person takes that on or not um, it is up to them. Um, I do a lot of 360 assessments and often, you know, not, not often, often, but every once in a while, about 10, 15% of the time, it's some really difficult feedback. This person is, um, is domineering. They cut people off. They think they're the smartest person in the room. And my job then is to deliver this feedback. And many times, I would say almost all the time with this kind of individual, they say, I've never heard this before. And sadly, I have to say to them, well, you didn't hear it because you wouldn't let it be heard. Yeah. You cut them off. You were defensive. And the person just said, forget it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I tried. I'm going to move mm -hmm. on. So I do think, um, you know, the critical side of feedback, the constructive side of feedback needs to be said. 
But the per- we all need to be open to that. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody wants to hear constructive feedback. But boy, oh boy, if I'm doing something that my team doesn't find productive, I'd sure rather le- hear about it than have them just plain leave. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it's probably not a mistake for leaders to ask their employees occasionally. Nah. Do you have any feedback for me? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Teams that have, um, the Franklin Covey has done a bit of research on this, and they've discovered that teams that engage in regular feedback, both constructive and redirecting feedback, are much more effective as teams than the ones that just don't create that habit. Because then, otherwise, feedback is suddenly, oh my gosh, there's a huge problem, rather than next time, why don't you pause after you present your point of view and let mm-hmm. other people weigh in? Yeah. And what do you mean by redirecting feedback? Redirecting is here's what I'd like you to do instead. Ah, okay. Here's yeah. um, here's what you could do next time. Yeah. Looking forward instead of just looking back at what wasn't ideal in the past. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, um, again, our guest today has been uh, Janet Pollack. Her book is The Seven Mistakes Managers Make. And a final question uh, for you, Janet. You you had mentioned when we talked before that um, there, there there was a book or books you had started, you had attempted. What I'd yep. be curious to hear about that. So Seven Mistakes is my third attempt. And so um, not every time you'll need to be successful. And all three were after I wrote my dissertation. So I am used to writing in bulk. Um, But the second one that I did was about, um, I'm sorry. And I started about three or four years ago because there was this, it was about when Me Too was coming around and we heard these story, you know, from high profile individuals who always use the word if in their apology. If I offended anybody, well, you're being sued, buddy. Of course you offended someone. <laughs> right. And right. so I, I I took on to try to, you know, what is a good framework for apologizing to someone else? And I got stuck because I reached out to friends and said, do you have a story about when you apologized or when you were apologized to and how did that go? And sadly, I just didn't get enough stories. Mm-hmm. You know, and Mark, when you and I first connected, I was so delighted that you've got this podcast that focuses on mistakes, because that's fundamental to apologizing is Mm. that I have admitted I've done something wrong Mm -hmm. and I've done Mm -hmm. something wrong to someone else and I want to make it better. And so I, I learned in the book writing experience that, you know, all books don't have to be completed. Maybe that, um, that I'm sorry book will, will rear its ugly head again in another couple of years and the stories will start flooding in. (laughs) Well, as, as you often see with entrepreneurs and and others who've been on the podcast, um, success often comes out of, or, you know, uh, something successful in this case, a successfully completed and and published book. Congratulations for that. It often comes in the, uh, the follow-up to attempts that didn't go as well one way or another. Yes. So um, a a good story of, perseverance and um you know like i'd like to think it's just it's it's a podcast about learning from mistakes and, mm-hmm. and part of that yeah. is admitting um the mistakes so janet thank you for um your your graciousness and um your your willingness to share the story and more importantly what you learned from it in your, in your reflections here today i really do appreciate that thank you so much mark this was really a delight and my pleasure 
So again, um, Janet Pollock, uh, her website is inthelead.co. Her book is The Seven Mistakes Managers Make. I encourage you to check that out. There'll be links, of course, in the show notes. So uh, so Janet, thank you. Thanks again for, uh, for being here today. Thank you so much, Mark. Again, thanks so much to Janet for being a guest today. To learn more about her, her book, her consulting work, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraben.com slash mistake175. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.